If you are with me in Malachi chapter 4, this morning we bring our series called Indifference to a Conclusion. We started the book of Malachi due to the fact of its profile of individual believers in God who allowed their circumstances to condition their relationship with God. That condition was the condition of indifference, and those circumstances were circumstances of difficulty. Due to the trial, troubles, and tribulations that the children of Israel were going through at that time, and for the period of time that they were going through them, it wasn't just a a one-year thing. This was going on a hundred years. They were having difficulties, and things never... um, appeared to pan out the way they anticipated or expected them to. And as a result, they started to grow indifferent towards God. That indifference manifested itself in different ways. And throughout the book, we've been looking at different rhetorical questions in which God has asked the the nation of Israel, and they themselves, not seeing the sin within their own lives, couldn't identify with what God was saying to them, and so continuously asked God to clarify his position. As God said, for I have loved you. And they responded by saying, how have you loved us? And I've noticed that whenever that position of indifference, it's a hard attitude that we as believers must be careful to not fall within. It always begins with the doubt or the questioning of God's love towards us. Love is a characteristic of God, for it is one of three characteristics that is solely uh, described as an attribute of God in its entirety. For example, what I mean by that is that there are many attributes of God that are expressed Uh, expounded on by adjectives, this is one that is originated in him and it is his character and that is love. For there are three that are found in God and he is the originator of them and they are part of his character that he cannot violate. And that is life. God is life, the Bible tells us. God is love and God is light. And these are three things that God can never chains their immutable facts concerning the character of God. When an individual begins to doubt or to question the love of God towards them, and there is a move through the church in America today to uh, almost uh, not eliminate, but to, um, to dampen the understanding of the love of God towards us, feeling that the love of God is being defined by the world rather than by the scriptures. The world has its idea of love. And we see how the, word ha- the world has changed this word love to fit its particular agenda, its particular uh, shape, and so forth. The Bible talks about love in a completely different manner. A selfless, sacrificial, unconditional type of love. It is this love that we speak of. And as the children of Israel began to doubt and to question God's love towards them, they fell into various other sins. And we find that throughout the text of Malachi. And we've worked through all of those together 
here on Sunday morning. It came then to a point in chapter 3 that we will continue with this morning. Where their indifference had not only blinded them to their own sin, but it also distorted the character of God. As the children of Israel began to see that others who did not follow God, did not believe in God, even believed and followed pagan gods, were materially blessed, they held places of prominence and power here in this world, they were wealthy. They appeared to have their health. They had everything that this world appeared to offer them and were enjoying themselves within it. The children of Israel saw that and said, well, if they're so well off, if they're doing so well, not following God and not believing in God, and we're sacrificing for God and we are following his commandments and we are living by his convictions, what benefit is it to us to do it any longer? If they over there are being blessed with all the things of this world, money and health and prosperity and prominence and position and fame, etc. What's the point of following God any longer? Why should we even continue doing so? And apparently, they went as far as to think that God blesses evil and he suppresses righteousness. As they said in Malachi 3, 14 and 15, For you have said, as you spoke harshly unto the Lord, that he states, It is vain to serve the Lord, to worship him, to follow him. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, that is his commandments, or of walking in, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, which is his convictions. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. For it appears that not only do they live apart from God and are, are financially and, and physically and, and blessed through worldly means, they also seem to thumb their nose up to God. And they do it in a manner in which provokes him and he does not respond. And so that must mean that God approves of such things. And I find that there are many struggling with that today, especially younger people, and I understand it. You're following God, you see your parents following God, you're sacrificing, you're, you're inhibiting yourself from those things that are prohibited by the word of God. And it's only getting more and more difficult for you. It's not getting any easier and then you look around and you see your friends and you see their families who don't believe in God and even somewhat stick their nose up to God or deny Him altogether in this new wave of atheism that we find. And they're, they're blessed and they have beautiful homes and they have big, nice cars and, and they got a real Corvette and uh, I didn't. And, uh, you know, and all these things. And you're like, what's the point anymore? What's the point of sacrificing anymore? struggling with that today, and I want you to be honest before God. You don't have to be before me, but be honest before God. I would strongly encourage you to go home this evening, and it's moment of privacy, read Psalm 73. 
because the psalmist came to that exact same position. David. And he was very concerned about it. And then it says, he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and there something was revealed to him that changed his whole entire attitude. And I want, you to, I want that to be a personal moment between you and God as you read through Psalm 73. Because I think you need to see it. You need to read it for yourself. And this will allow you to see things in its proper context. Why does God allow blessing on those who do not believe in him? Why does God allow for those things to seem to be plentiful in their lives and scarce in ours? It's because he loves them. And he doesn't desire them to perish. For his long suffering that he shows to these people is, uh, it's unfathomable to me. I, I, can't even, I can't even grasp it. And even when they, you know, throw up their finger at God and tell him that they want nothing to do with him, he still loves them and hopes that they would come to repentance and find eternal. As he says, I reign on the just and the unjust. But the children of Israel, for them, this was the final straw. And so God said to them in verse 18 of chapter 3, he said to them, for those who are mine, I shall remember, verse 17, and they will be a treasured possession to me, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There were those in Israel who still loved the Lord. They still followed him. They were still willing sacrifice on his behalf, the wants and desires of their own hearts in desiring to follow him. They weren't going to settle for the second best that the world has to offer. They wanted the best that God had to offer. God says, I'll remember you. But there's going to come a time, verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And what he is saying there is this. There's coming a day. The title of my message is The Day Is Coming. There's coming a day when you're going to see for yourself it all come to fruition. Everything come into play. And that day is a soon arriving. It will arrive at that moment in time that the Old Testament declares to be the day of the Lord, which isn't one particular day, 24-hour period of time. In this case, it is a period of time. And the manner in which the day of the Lord is described in the Old Testament, it starts with bleakness and darkness. And then as it gets to the point where he couldn't get any darker, there's a dawning of a new era. And in the dawning of that new era, there's the sun of righteousness that rises that will allow those who desire to live righteously to do so without the oppression of wickedness and unrighteousness any longer. And this day of the Lord is the period of time that is known as the second coming of Jesus Christ. For Revelation chapters 6 through 19 tell us clearly 
that the darkest hour in the history of humanity will be those seven years prior to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But after that, when he does return, it is like a dawning of a new era. And once again, we will see and be able to discern uh, discern and to see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. God's saying, you believe that I favor them over you. He's not saying that at all, and he's not demonstrating that at all. He is saying to them that I do so in my kindness and my love towards them because I hope and desire that they would come to know me. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that clearly. That's why he's so patient with people. That's why he's loving to people, and we should be also in hopes that they would come to repentance. But a day is coming. And it is this day that Malachi now speaks of. And if you are with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, notice with me as we begin. Behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There's going to be a moment of accountability a moment where an individual must stand before God and be personally responsible for his sin before a holy God. And at that moment, as the New Testament writes, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but then at that moment it's too late. The opportunity, the day of salvation had passed. A person has an opportunity to repent and to receive eternal life all the way up to the moment that they breathe their last breath. For the thief on the cross took advantage of that situation specifically. As Jesus hung there on the cross, the thief next to him said, remember me when you enter into paradise. And he says, you will be with me in paradise. God gives ample opportunity and an abundant Uh, chances for individuals to come to saving faith. But if they choose not to, if they choose to be arrogant, which is an insolence, it's a a pride, it's a refusal to bend their knee to the grace and to the love and the mercy of God, then they have sealed their fate. For there is only one means of salvation, And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying, behold, that day is coming. That day of reckoning. That day of judgment. That day of the Lord. And they will be subjected to a moment in time that he declares and describes as a burning oven. Now, when you think of something burning, I think we've all recently seen the wildfires in California. Okay, California is on fire, but unfortunately, it's not for the Lord. And these poor people have been displaced and their homes have been ruined. 
They tried to control those blazes to the best of their abilities, directing them and steering them away from highly populated areas. But the fire had its own determination, didn't it? It was going to go where it was going to go. But burning like an oven shows us that this judgment is controlled, that it isn't random, that it has a specific purpose. And those who are insolent and arrogant and prideful before God and resist his salvation through Jesus Christ, they are going to be like mere stubble. And stubble, if you're familiar with wheat and chaff and hay, um, I, don't, I don't know anybody who is other than David down here, but um, if you are, stubble is that portion of the uh, hay that is so flammable that it just, go, it, just, it just goes up in flames and it's gone. It's like tissue paper, you know, it's just like gone if you light it on fire. They're not going to be able to stand within this period of time whatsoever. But an oven has another responsibility, doesn't it, also? Okay, those items are like stubble. Those who are arrogant and wicked, they're not going to survive or last, and they're going to be brought to nothing to the point of the root and branch are dealt with, as he states here very clearly. There's going to be no remembrance of them. But an oven can have a second purpose also, and that's a refining process. It's a smelting oven. It's an oven that's used in metallurgy. It's the oven that used to heat up gold or silver and to bring the dross to the uh, top of it. And that dross was then scraped away. And when the gold was perfected, the individual perfecting it could see his reflection within it. And then he knew that that gold was pure enough and did not have to be refined any farther. When we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations, they're always controlled by the Lord. Whatever difficulties we experience. And they're used as a refiner's fire in our life. And as the gold is being um, purified and the dross is being slipped away, that is the old nature, the sin that we carry within the old nature and so forth, the image that should be born within that gold is not us personally, but the Lord Jesus Christ as God is using these circumstances to conform us into the image of Jesus. And so he uses language here in the Hebrew language that is very precise to say that this is all controlled, it is at the hand of the Lord, and this is what will happen. Those who seem so established, they seem to have everything. uh, Their health is perfect. Their bodies are flawless. And it's funny because in Psalm 73, it talks about their physical appearance. I don't want to give it away, but it's so funny. A good thing back then was to be fat and sleek. I don't know how those two go together, but I'm almost there. No. Uh, And that was a good thing. They had everything going for them. They were perfect. And then the psalmist has a realization, and that's what I'll allow you to discover for yourself. But notice with me in verse 2. But for you... And it is to us that he is speaking to here in this text. It is to those who are faithful, to those who fear the Lord and reverence his name. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, 
And on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. But for you, this same period of time, it will be the dawning of a new age. There is much debate amongst individuals who, who look at this term, son of righteousness. Was Malachi referring to Jesus Christ here at this time? And the oldest of traditions tell us that this is what the individuals believe, going all the way back to Justin Martin, that this was the uh, a messianic term. At this point, the son of righteousness, S-O-N, will rise. And here they use S-U-N, will rise. And in its wings, healing will come. Now, if you have the King James, New King James, you're going to have in his wings. Now, there is a problem with that translation that I must bring to your attention. For the word righteousness here and the word it in the Hebrew is in the feminine gender. And so it does cause to question if Messiah is actually being referred to here or not. Now, we know that righteousness is ushered in purely because of the work of Jesus Christ. We're not denying that. Any righteousness that we obtain as individuals is not righteousness that we obtain for ourselves, but has been imputed to us by Jesus Christ. It has been given to us by Christ. We have been clothed, not with our own righteousness before God as one who is saved, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in the second coming of Jesus, when righteousness is instilled, and he begins to reign 1,000 years, Revelation chapter 20, from Jerusalem, righteousness will dominate Why? Because the Bible goes on to tell us that at that moment, Satan will be bound for 1,000 years, not not able to cause havoc any longer on this earth. And there will be a new dawn, a new era, where we who desire to live righteously in Christ will no longer be oppressed by wickedness and sin. For at the moment that we enter into the millennial kingdom, it will be with those new bodies prepared for eternity, no longer subjected to sin or to death. And then I will have the body that I've always wanted. And if you see me combing my hair, it's not vanity. I just forgot what it was like. It's a day I look forward to, certainly. And I believe that's what Malachi is writing here. And in this, the things will begin to heal. The oppression of those who are righteous. Now, it's interesting to me that if you look back into the Old Testament further, going all the way back to Genesis, you come to across a, a man named Lot and his wife who were you know, escorted out by angels from Sodom and Gomorrah before the angels destroyed those two cities. Peter tells us that Lot was oppressed by the wickedness of his day. It was difficult to do the right thing, to walk with the Lord because of the oppression and the wickedness and the evil that was surrounding him. God knew that. He took that into consideration. And I believe what Malachi is writing here and discussing and introducing to us is a time where that wickedness will no longer have its oppressive effect upon us. I can't even imagine that, can you? But it's a time in which God says that they shall look forward to. 
There will be healing in its wings in this time of righteousness and, of course, in the power of Jesus Christ. And we will respond in such a unique way that, again, it's hard for me to understand or identify with. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't released a calf from the stall lately. I don't know what that's all about. So I did a little bit of research, and I know a little bit more about calves now, probably more than I tend to want to know. And after a calf was born, he would be kept in a pen with its mother for a period of time so it could fatten up. Also that it could stand up. Many of the calves, you know, were very wobbly on their legs initially. But then there would become a time when the, the farmer, the, the calf owner, would see that that calf is now strong enough and the environment is safe enough to allow that calf out, calf out and just to graze and to enjoy the freedom and the uh, expanse in which the farmer could provide for that calf. And calves would literally leap. It looked like when they were released from the, uh, the, the pen, they would jump up and down. It was the funniest thing, watching calves jump up and down. They, it looked like they were happy. And so the uh, writer Malachi is saying, that's what it's going to be like for us. We're going to jump for joy. We're going to leap because of the righteousness that is now instilled. And those that you thought were so prosperous, those who you thought were so well off, those you thought that were being blessed by me, verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on that day when I act, says, I'm sorry, on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. That day. Until then, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember we are speaking to Jewish people still under the governance of the covenant that Moses was given by God. And God says, he turns them back to it and he says, remember the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb and for all Israel. He's turning them back to his word. He's encouraging. Remember, he's speaking to those who still fear his name, who still reverence him. And he's encouraging them, go back to my word. Go back to me. Stay there. Be obedient. And in so doing, you will assure yourself the blessing of this time rather than the judgment of this time in which we call the day of the Lord. And behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord that comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And in the King James, Old King James, New King James, it's that of a curse. I think it's interesting that the Old Testament ends with a curse. The curse of sin was not able to be rectified through the law. It could only be rectified through the person of Jesus Christ in whom he is now setting up for them to anticipate, if you remember Malachi chapter 3. The prophet Elijah, though, will precede him. Now, there's a lot of confusion. What does this mean? When John the Baptist came, he 
identified himself clearly with the one who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ that was talked about in Malachi chapter 3. Some believe that this is one and the same, that John the Baptist fulfilled all of this that is being spoken of here by Malachi. But there's a problem with that. For John the Baptist said very clearly that he was not Elijah. He said so in John chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. So who was John the Baptist? Well, he was, of course, the forerunner. And Jesus said if the nation of Israel would have repented and received their Messiah, Jesus, he would have been that Elijah in which, which was uh, predicted. But the nation of Israel rejected him. They rejected their Messiah. So Elijah now will precede Jesus, not at his first coming, but precede him at his second coming. And will turn the fathers back to the children and the children to the father. There is more than just a, a family relationship that's in play there. They're talking about individuals going back to the faith of their forefathers turning them back to their faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob carried themselves within Noah, etc. That's what Elijah will do. I truly believe the Gospels are clear that John the Baptist was not Elijah due to the fact that in Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist is already dead. He had been beheaded by King Herod. And yet after the Mount of Transfigurations in Matthew 17 verses 11 and 12, I believe, when they come down from the Mount of Transfigurations, who did they see appear with Jesus at that moment on the mountain? Elijah and Moses. And when they came down, they asked, when will Elijah come again? And Jesus said, if John the Baptist was received and I was received, he would have come, but he's still yet to come. So Jesus kind of settles it for us that there's still another coming of Elijah that will precede him and turn the fathers back to the children, etc. When will that be? Revelation chapter 11. I clearly believe that Elijah is one of the two prophets that precede the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I advocate and I am a proponent that the other is Moses himself. And as a result, we have the law and the prophets all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this prophecy will be fulfilled. And so you can take a look at it for yourself when you have that opportunity. But he gives this promise to those who are waiting. And this is specifically to the nation of Israel. It will be Israel's restoration. It will be when Israel is not only restored, but reconciled to God. And this will all take part and take place in the millennial kingdom of Revelation chapter 20. And that's what Malachi is looking forward to. When that son of righteousness is revealed. Now there's four things I want to leave with you this morning before we take communion. At first, I'd like to read these passages to you. In Psalm 37, 6, it states, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Or Isaiah 58, 8, 
Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard behind you. And at that moment, Isaiah 60 tells us, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, speaking to the nation of Israel. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. And this all takes place in the millennial kingdom. This morning I wanted to talk to you a little bit because as we get into 2018, I believe that we are 2018 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ. We don't know when it's going to happen, but I believe as believers in Jesus Christ, we look for the blessed hope of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for us who are in the church, we believe that's in the rapture of the church. And that could happen at any moment. There is nothing that has to happen that would prohibit the rapture of the church from taking place. God removing his bride, his church, prior to the seven year of tribulation that is scheduled to be uh, unfold and poured out upon the nation of Israel for their disobedience. For God gathered the nation of Israel back to their land in 1948, established in in Jerusalem in 1967. And this year, uh, last year I should say, uh, now the world is beginning to look at Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which is significant to say the least. The stage is set. Things are not getting better in our world. I wish I could say that they were. I don't want to be pessimistic because with the Lord, I believe it's very difficult to remain pessimistic. The Lord has a tendency to change our viewpoints to be very optimistic. I welcome the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I also live each and every day in anticipation of that return and are serious about being about his business because I have loved ones who still do not know him. And I'm going to continue to offer the same love and grace and invitation to them that I believe God's long-suffering is allowing me to do in this moment of pause before the final curtain falls. I ask you this morning, what is your personal perspective or consideration concerning the Lord's return? I ask this to you because today many in the Christian church are kind of, if I may, poo-pooing it. It's like, oh, that's so negative. I, I don't really want to consider it. Well, it may be negative to you in the position in which you lie, but let's consider brothers and sisters around the Lord, around the Lord, around the world, in the Lord, who do not have the protection of their country or government to allow them to worship the Lord freely and openly, so they do so under great persecution, underground, hiding, knowing that if they are caught, they could be arrested, their material possessions could be taken from them, they could be killed, they could watch their family be killed simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you were to say to them, oh, I'm not really interested in the coming of the Lord, they're probably like, are you kidding? I wait for it every single day. 
because their perspective is so different. I cried, I'm going to be honest with you, I cried when I saw those churches in Iraq that were liberated from ISIS hosting Christmas services last year. They had been plummeted, they had been persecuted, they had been tortured and killed, their churches were ransacked, they were worshiping God in rubble. And it was so sincere. And they were so thankful to have this one opportunity to openly worship God. Do you think the sun of righteousness, that dawning of righteousness means a lot to them? Let's get past our American Western perspective for just a minute and look at it like those in the scriptures would. And they called it the blessed hope. So why are we frowning upon it then? What is our personal perspective concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Number two, let us take a moment to consider the big picture. Let us take a moment to take a step out of our own shoes and consider the big picture. And would things not be better off if the Lord were to return? Absolutely. Now, I know I was in that same spot some of you guys are in. I just want to get married first before the Lord returns. I just want to have this before the Lord returns. That Corvette before the Lord returns. I know what's going to happen. Someone's going to pull up, hand me the keys to a brand new Corvette, and boom, we're out of here. (laughs) And I'm going to look at the Lord, and he's just going to look at me. I know this is biblical. He said, ah, you missed it by that much. (laughs) I know God has a sense of humor. He created me. What is our viewpoint? Look at the big picture. Look at the totality of it all. I don't think this is something that we should uh, dismiss or diminish. I think it's something that we should reverence within. We should not be uh, hyper about it in the sense that we're predicting it every other day or setting dates or that we are uh, sensationalizing it, but we should live in the urgency of it. And number three, let us stay in the word of God as he instructed his people to stay in the law of God. As we wait for the return of Jesus Christ, let us be saturated in the Word of God. Let us be reading it. Let us be memorizing it and studying it and let it comfort our hearts and find those promises in which He has made to us that we may walk upon them in the times of trouble, trials, and tribulations. And then watch for the promises to be fulfilled, number four. And this will guard us from growing indifferent to the Lord. He knew that if his people anticipated the arrival of their Messiah, it would be very difficult for them to stay in a place of apathy and carnality and complacency and indifference. It would fire them up. And this is the last words that God speaks for 400 years until all of a sudden, this strange individual in the wildernesses of the wilderness of Israel covered in camel's hair and eating honey and locusts the original hipster starts proclaiming one is coming one is coming in whom sandals I am not worthy to untie one is coming one is coming and he is going to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world And he ushers in that time of the arrival of Jesus Christ.
We come now to our time where we take communion as a church together. And I pray that as you take time with the Lord, as you take communion, you consider the things that we have said. Remember how much God has loved you and how he has demonstrated that love by sending his only son, Jesus Christ. And then remember all that he has done for you on top of that. Just blessed us with every spiritual blessing that's in heavenly places through Christ. What is in the world that is so worth it that it's worth turning your back on God? I ask you that question because for every person it's different. What is worth it? Peter had that opportunity and when everyone else departed, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, listen, are you going to depart also? Are you going to leave? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Where are you going to go? Is the world that much better off, really? Really? Or is it just a moment in time where God's patience and long-suffering is trying to draw them onto him? As he shows them kindness, as he shows them blessing, as he shows them his love. For us who are believers, this is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. But for someone outside of Christ, this is the best it's ever going to get. It's only going to get worse. So in 2018, I ask you not to grow indifferent, but to grow so passionately in love with Jesus that everything else in the world pales in comparison.